Tonight we are starting a, a brand new series, just two short, short little two-week series called Branches, Embracing a Long Obedience. And I know that that sounds like punishment, kind of, right? Long obedience, geez. Uh, just hang with us. It's going to be good. Really, it, it comes down, we're going to read a passage in a second here, but it comes down to a very simple idea. Uh, Jesus says something very profound about what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus in the Gospel of John, and we'll read it in a second. But for the next couple of weeks, we're going to explore one key part of what Jesus says. We're going to explore the idea of remaining in Jesus. Remaining in Jesus. Uh, the other day I was at home, and um, does anybody have Netflix? How many of you guys have Netflix? Yeah, a bunch of you guys. Cool. If you don't know what Netflix is, mean, everyone knows what Netflix is. If you don't have it, the way it works, uh, our friend Joel, who was at the 5 p.m. service, part of our church, he works at Netflix, so I asked him, uh, there's over 20,000 movies and television shows in Netflix's database. 20,000. There's a lot, right? So you have access, if you pay the monthly fee, you have access to all these movies. And so you have this thing called your instant queue, Okay. You guys all, those of you who have Netflix, you all have an instant queue, right? Joel told me at the 5 o'clock service that the national average for the instant queue is about 25 movies and shows. So there are people keep about 25 movies and shows in their queue that you can kind of flip through and decide what you want to watch when. Uh, I, was on, I, was, I was watching Netflix the other day at my house, and uh, I have over 200 movies and TV shows on my instant queue, which basically just means like I'm a sick person, right? There's something wrong with me. Now, here's the problem. Anytime I see something like a new release or whatever, I'm like, oh, that's got to go on my instant queue. It looks amazing, right? Even if it's like some crap movie or sometimes it'll be like some cartoon I watched when I was seven. I was like, oh, I totally watched that instant queue, right? I never watch it, but it just goes on my instant queue. And I remember uh, last night or a couple nights ago, I'm home, I'm watching, I'm trying to find something to watch on Netflix. And the way I have my Netflix set up, it's like on my television and I use my PlayStation 3 console to watch it. And so you use your little controller and to flip through your instant queue, you just press like the little button, right? Like the little side button to, and I'm, I'm pressing the button trying to find something to watch. And like all these movies that are in my queue are flipping through. And at one point I have this like almost existential moment where I almost like felt like I left my body and I was, I was watching myself engage my Netflix and I saw my finger and I was like, my finger is moving so fast. And the movies are just like, they're like, it's like a subway train, right? It's just, all these movies and I cannot decide what to watch. I have so many choices, all of which I have deemed at one point in history like semi-entertaining or interesting for me to put in my instant queue, and I cannot pick. I like scroll through the thing like multiple times, and I can't decide. It's like death by choices, right? It's like I have so many choices. I have no choice. I have so many options. I have no option. This is the world in which we live, you and I, choices everywhere, options all the time, the world, the entire world, the global community. We have access to it on our phones. I was thinking earlier today, uh, when I was in elementary school, my mom took me to the movies, and she, it was like, I forget, I got a good grade or something. 
or I learned how to use my chopsticks or something like that. And my mom was like, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to take you to the movies. And we went, uh, we went to go watch an American tale. Does anybody remember that? You might remember the sequel, Fievel Goes West or something, which screw that sequel. It's all about the original. Uh, an American tale. And I remember I knew I was going to watch it, right? My mom had told me, hey, Friday, I'm going to take you to watch an American tale. It's going to be awesome. And it consumed my thoughts. And I remember driving to the theater with my mom, and we walked out, and she, you know, asked the person, the lady, for two, tic- two tickets for American Tale. I'm like, it's happening! And we walk in, I'm like, Mom, can I get some popcorn? She's like, yeah. And my mom never let me drink soda, but was, and she never Coke, but at least Sprite. I was like, maybe she'll let me drink Sprite. I was like, Mom, can I get a Sprite? And she's like, son, tonight you can have a Coke, right? It's like, (laughs) mind blown, no way. Popcorn, Coke, Fievel, cartoon, American Tale. And I remember sitting, I was this little kid, sitting in this seat, this cushiony seat in the theater, and I still remember the feeling of it, right? Like feeling like I was sitting on a king's throne. And here is this two-hour or however long film that was here just to entertain me. It was like I was, in, I was like enraptured in this like world of mice and <laughs> the ocean and trying to get to America or whatever the movie was about, right? I'm like, it was like this, maybe the movie's 90 minutes long, but it felt like this epic, lifelong thing, you know? And I finish, and and the movie's over, and I'm done with my Coke, and I'm done with my popcorn. And we walk out, and I remember all I could talk about was the movie. You know, we get in my car, and I'm just telling my mom, this is the best movie, oh my gosh, I want to be a mouse, right? Or whatever, I'm like freaking out. And, And I remember thinking about an American tale. I remember imagining it in my head. I remember at certain points going to bed that week, and maybe even later, I remember going to bed imagining in my head like a sequel to American Tale, you know, trying to play it out in my mind, what would it be like? And I remember I was just like, the, the magic of that thing, of that film, just like engrossed me, right? It just like captured me, it captivated me, it took me. And here I am, 20-something years later, with my finger moving like an addict that needs another fix, just scrolling through hundreds of movies, like they're nothing. They've lost the magic, and we have lost the magic We've lost the art of remaining, of sitting, of expectation, of longing, of saying this is the one thing that I am about right now. Not one of many things, not one of many choices, but this is the one thing. And for as long as I can, I'm going to sit here in this place, in this moment, in this space, and I'm going to let it just take me over. Some of you experience this. Maybe it was like, maybe it was a concert you went to, right? Maybe it was a film that you saw. Maybe it was a piece of art that just captivated you. Maybe it was a book. We don't do this often enough. We don't remain in a place. We don't situate ourselves in a space and allow the space, give it time to really do its work. 
I wonder how much we miss out on the stuff that God wants to do in and through us because we lack patience, because God is not the only thing. God is an option, and we just push a button and scroll through our queue. So for the next two weeks, we're going to ask that question, what does it look like to remain with God a while? Uh, I want to I paint a picture for you of the world in which we live, because it's not just Netflix, right? Check this out. This is crazy. This is all research compiled by the Associated Press. The average attention span in America in the year 2000 was 12 minutes. That was the average attention span in the U.S. in the year 2000, and now a decade later, a little over a decade later, the average attention span is less than five minutes. Uh, 80%, let's just talk about books, right? Because books aren't tweets. Tweets are 140 characters. Books are anywhere between 30,000 and 100,000 words. It takes way longer to read a book than, than it does to read a tweet. 80% of U.S. families did not purchase a single book this year. 80%. We hate books in America. Check this out. 40% of college grads will never read another book after graduating college. Some of you who are seniors right now, you're like, yeah, for sure, no, no, that's happening. That's me, that's me, yeah, for sure. This is finals, you're like, no, I'm gonna burn this and then maybe burn every book, right? Or whatever, you hate books. That's sad though, 40% of college grads never read another book. 60% of books started in the US, meaning they were opened and somebody began reading them. 60% of these books in the US that are started are never finished. Some of you are getting really uneasy because you have mastered this art. You know, starting books, never finishing. I see people covering their faces. I do that too. If you came to my house, I have an office at my home, I'd be embarrassed actually because you go on my bookshelf and open a book, there's a good chance the first third to half of the book be highlighted like crazy and the second half of the book is just like pristine, right? <laughs> like I, I do that a lot. I just lose steam. Let's, not, let's move on from books. Let's talk about something else. What about like life in the office? Uh, office workers check uh, their email inboxes over 30 times an hour. That's average in our country. Over 30 times an hour. Yeah, it's average. I mean, I'm not making this up. Associated Press, you Google it. It's crazy. Check this out. These are just like known statistics. I love the name Instagram, right? This is like so indicative of the world in which we live. Instagram. Take a picture, look artsy in two seconds. <laughs> over 100 million users on Instagram. I'm one of them. There are over 500 million users on Twitter. I am one of them. So is this church. Uh, this is insane. I think they're going to take over the world. There are over a billion users on Facebook. A billion? Are, like, that's crazy. There are over a billion people on Facebook. I want you to go home tonight, and if you're not my Facebook friend, look for me. Just type in J. Kim. I guarantee you there's like 10 million J. Kims. <laughs> and just find me. That'd be like a fun game, you know? Like, I think it's him. I don't know. 20% uh, of views on websites, so you like type in a web address, a URL, and then you go to the website. 20%, one in five uh, visits on a website last less than four seconds. That's, our, that's how attentive we are to things. Like, oh, yeah, it doesn't like, it, like capture me right away. I'm done. Four seconds, out. One in five. Only 4%, 4% of views on websites last more than 10 minutes. 
Maybe the best barometer of how our souls have been deformed by our access and, and quick access to information, maybe, maybe uh, one of the ways in which, uh, one of the best ways to assess how we have been marked and changed by technology, and please hear me correctly, I am a fan of technology, and I am, I'm for technology, and I think technology has done immense good in the world. But technology is a part of the, the space in which we live, and that space has actually done something to us. It's not technology's fault. It is the soci sociological ramifications of having access to all this technology that we have mismanaged. And here's the, maybe the best example. How many of you guys have a MacBook or a MacBook Pro? Just raise your hand high. Okay, good. A lot of you. You all feel what I feel when you see this, right? Yeah, right now you're freaking out because it's like really huge. You're like, oh my God, I'm going to go up there and murder it, right? It's like, don't worry, it's just a picture, right? But when this thing pops up on your, on your MacBook, you like freak out. I like freak out. I want to punch my, my laptop in the face. And then I realize like, I can't afford another one of these. Like I'm not going to punch my laptop. Have you ever thought about what happens in us? It's like, well, what do you mean I can't Skype with my friend on the other side of the planet by talking into this metal box immediately right now? Why is there a pinwheel spinning? Why can't it just happen? Yeah, my friend, he's in Africa, and I want to talk to him in real time and just talk, and he can hear me, and I can hear him, and we can see each other. I should be able to push a button and do that. That's just right. That's the humane thing. Why is there this pinwheel? This, this is what's happened to us. It's, that's how I feel all the time. It's because options and choices abound, and that is, in fact, in many ways, a good thing, a wonderful thing, a beautiful thing. But if we do not balance our uh, involvement with all the many choices, the plethora of options around us, if we do not balance our engagement with options and choices with a deeper understanding of what it means to live on this earth as a follower of Jesus, we will inevitably end up running the rat race distant from God and deeply frustrated. Because here is what Jesus says about being his follower. You've all heard the term disciple. You all think and know and accept. Maybe not all of you, but most of you know and accept the reality that God's calling on you is not just to believe, but to follow, to be a disciple of Jesus, to be a follower of Jesus. We're going to explore that idea in depth tonight. But here is what Jesus actually says about that. And this is our key passage for this series. It's John. John 15, verses 5 to 8, this is what Jesus says. I am the vine, you are the branches. And here's the key. If you remain in me, if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. 
None of us have ever taken a branch off of an apple tree, ripped the branch off the tree, and watched as apples grew. Right? That does not happen because fruit is only born of a branch when the branch is connected to the roots, to the vine, to the actual base of the tree. A branch is simply an extension of that which it is attached to. Detach the branch and the branch no longer has within itself the power to to produce the fruit that it's meant to produce. And this is the picture Jesus uses to tell us about discipleship. And And he says, remain in me. And the truth is, we struggle to remain in Jesus. Most of us just visit Jesus when we need something. Or on Sunday nights, because that's the thing to do. And if you are at the beginning of your journey... And this is maybe like your first time here, and this sounds harsh. Man, you just need to hear, we are stoked you're here. And if you think some of this stuff is weird and you feel like, I don't don't know, it'll take me some time, I want to think about it, I'm not sure I want to be back next week, listen, don't hear this the wrong way. That's okay. It's okay to have questions. It's okay to have doubts. But ultimately, at the end of the day, if and when you make the decision to not just check Jesus out, which is a great thing, and if you're checking him out, then awesome. So glad you're doing that. Ask whatever questions you have after this. But if you are ready and willing to commit your life to Jesus, then here's the deal. Jesus is not someone to simply visit or uh, check in on every once a week. He, he is the vine to which your branch must attach, your life Because without that connection, without remaining in the vine, you and I, as followers of Jesus, will bear no fruit. That's just the reality. It's a spiritual reality and it's a physical reality. Jesus says, remain in me. Remain in me. Stay. Stay a while. Sit in the space. Be with God. Don't just do stuff for God or learn about God, but be with God. Frederick Nietzsche, who actually was not a Christian, far from it, declared God was dead. Even Nietzsche said this about remaining in something. The essential thing that there is, that there should be long obedience in the same direction. There thereby results and has always resulted in the long run something which has made life worth living. Nietzsche, who, who said there is no God, God is dead. Even Nietzsche said, listen, I think the thing that actually makes life worth living is just committing yourself to something more than yourself and following for a long time. Remaining obedient in one direction, the same direction. Uh, there's this Jewish phrase, many of you have heard it, Right, that older Jewish men would say to younger Jewish men, and the phrase translated is, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. 
This was a phrase uh, deeply connected to the Jewish educational system between rabbis, who are Jewish teachers, and their students, who are called disciples. And so we're going to get a little bit into this because Jesus' words in John 15 are about discipleship. And so the next few moments are going to be a little bit dense, maybe a little terse, but just hang with me. Okay, this is like, you know, it's going to be a, it's like not that bad, a little bit heady. This is like a nerd alert. Just kind of hang, hang in with us, okay? The, the Jewish educational system at the time of Jesus in first century Palestine operated out of what was called the synagogue. Now, the synagogue was the localized version of the temple in Jerusalem, meaning the temple in Jerusalem is like the ultimate place of worship for the, the Jewish people. And, and because people could not travel to the temple all the time, they would build miniature versions of the temple in their little towns called synagogues. And the synagogues acted not only as the houses of worship for the town, they also acted as the educational, the academic centers of the town. And here is how the synagogue academic institution worked in the first century. Some of it actually has not changed. Changed Orthodox Jews still uh, adhere to this system by and large. But here's how it worked in the time of Jesus. In a local synagogue, there would be a rabbi or multiple rabbis, Jewish teachers, whose job it was to teach young boys. And at the age of five, around five or six, young boys, all of them in the town, Jewish boys, would be sent to the synagogue for a, a version of school called Bet Sefer. Bet Sefer, it's like the equivalent of grammar school, elementary school. And you would go and, and be there for five, six, seven years. Now, ladies, do not be offended, but girls did not go to school during this time. Okay, don't be mad at me. I didn't make that rule. It's just the way it was, right? So boys would go to Bet Sefer. Girls would stay home and learn like domestic trade, basically. Cooking, cleaning, things like that. Uh, now, they would, all boys would go to Bet Sefer, and at Bet Sefer, they would learn the books of Moses. Those are the first five books in your Bible, Right, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And between the ages of five and maybe like 12, not, they wouldn't just learn the books left and right like the back of their hand. Most boys at the end of Bet Sefer would have those five books of the Bible memorized. So at age 12, most 12-year-old Jewish boys in the first century could recite for you by memory the entirety of Genesis to Exodus to Leviticus to Numbers to Deuteronomy, all of it. They just recite it for you. This is what they did at Bet Sefer. Now, upon graduating from Bet Sefer, after about seven years of this intense study, the smarter boys would move on to what's equivalent to high school called Bet Midrash. The smarter boys. Now, the, the boys who were not as intelligent, they would either be sent home just completely outright to learn the family trade like carpentry or fishing, or they would go learn the family trade part-time and go to Bed Midrash part-time. And at Bed Midrash, these boys would learn the prophets, right? Like Isaiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Habakkuk, the prophets, and they would learn the writings like poetry, like uh, the Psalms and the Proverbs, Lamentations. Ecclesiastes, right? That's what they did. They would learn these books like the back of their hands. 
And they did this. The smarter boys would do this from age 12 or 13 all the way to about 16, 17. And upon essentially what is our equivalent of high school graduation, the best of the best, the absolute smartest of the smartest, the, the, the kids who, who slammed 2,400 on their SATs and, and applied to Ivy League schools, those guys would apply for what is called Talmudim. Talmudim. And that is the word from which we get the English word disciple. Now, the reason I tell you all of this is because I want you to understand that when Jesus talks about these young men being his disciples, he's not talking about what you and I often think of when we think of discipleship. Because what we think of is a book and a once a week coffee chat with a mentor. Well, he's discipling me. And he is. I have that relationship with some guys in my life too. It is discipleship. But you just need to know, when Jesus uses this phrase, he's talking about something so much more. He's talking about something that is inclusive of all of life. Because when a young boy at age 16 or 17 would apply to Talmudim, he would go to a rabbi that he respects, and he would say, Rabbi, I have finished Bet Sefer and Bet Midrash, and I would love, I would, I would give my life. I would leave it all behind to study under you and to be your disciple, your Talmudim. And the rabbis would either say yes or they would say no. If they say, said yes, then the, the young boys would follow the rabbi. They would leave their homes, leave their families, and give their life to following this rabbi. And what you have to understand about the rabbi-disciple relationship in the Jewish world is that disciples are not actually concerned with knowing what the rabbi knows. I'm going to say that again. Disciples don't care that much at all in, even about knowing what his rabbi knows. Disciples only care, their only concern is, is attaining the ability to do what their rabbi does. This is why in the story of Jesus walking on water, when Peter sees Jesus, he does not say, Jesus, get out of the water and into the boat and tell us, give us knowledge of how you walked on water. Instead, what does Peter say? If if you are my rabbi, tell me, this is my paraphrase, to do what you are doing, to walk on water. And he does. Jesus says, I am your rabbi. You are my disciple, my Talmudim. Step out of the boat and do as I am doing. And then Peter walks on water for like two steps and then he starts sinking, right? This is why in the New Testament, in the Gospels, what you see over and over again is not Jesus giving his disciples uh, answers, simple answers to simple questions or giving them some equations to figure out how to fix or solve problems. He is constantly pushing his, his disciples, his Talmudim, to think the way he thinks and to do what he does. He, in fact, says that to them, right? That you will do what I have done and even greater things. And so this is the world of rabbis and disciples. 
And there's a story in Luke that tells us of Jesus inviting his first disciples, his first Talmudim, to follow him. And it goes like this, Luke 5, 1 to 11. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a a little from shore. Then he, Jesus, sat down and and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' feet and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid from now on. You will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. This story is backwards because rabbis do not recruit disciples. Disciples apply to rabbis. And yet in this story, the rabbi of all rabbis, the rabbi who was not simply teaching about God, but was God, that rabbi, rather than accepting the best of the best applicants, he invites the worst of the worst. Simon Peter, James, and John are fishing. What that means is that they have been rejected from the Jewish academic system. They have applied and they have not made the cut. They are not the best of the best. They are fishermen. They have gone home to learn the family trade. And Jesus invites them to, to follow. And in this story, we see multiple things that teach us what it means to remain in Jesus. In verse 5, Peter says, Simon is his name at the time, he says, listen, uh, I don't know why you're telling us to go out and cast our nets again. We've been fishing all night. We're professional fishermen. We haven't caught anything. But because you say so. You see, remaining in Jesus requires that we begin following Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus, requires that we begin with the acknowledgement that if Jesus says so, then it will be so. It begins with this acknowledgement far too often. We visit Jesus on occasion when we need something. And instead of opening our lives to what he might have for us, we simply give him our list of wants and needs. And when we do not get that list fulfilled, we are disappointed in Jesus and our view of him begins to diminish and we question his power. But Simon does it a whole nother way. He says, well, 
I have a feeling about things and I think one thing and I'm a professional fisherman and this is logical to not go back out, but because you say so. How do we remain in Jesus? Mark Scandrett, in his book, Practicing the Way of Jesus, he says this, the scriptures cannot be adequately understood apart from an honest attempt to apply them to the details of life. The scriptures have been given to us to inspire us to be, this is beautiful, awake to the creator's reality in purposes so that we might, I love this, risk obedience. Are you willing to risk obedience? Because the reality is, if you want to remain in Jesus, if you want to follow him with your life, then he will often ask you to do things that seem illogical and unreasonable. And in that moment, will you trust and risk obedience? Will you say, as Simon said, because you say so? Because that's what it takes. And so they go out and they cast their net and they pull up more fish than they know what to do with. And they recognize in that moment that this man, Jesus, is not just a man. And Simon says in verse 8, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. And we can, uh, we can infer from that statement that he is saying to the rabbi, Jesus, you clearly are not, you are not like me. So go away from me, Lord. I don't deserve you. And this is a part of discipleship that we so often miss. We must recognize if we are to remain in Jesus for, with, with our life for a lifetime, not just visit Jesus, but remain in Jesus, then we must recognize that it is grace that allows us to remain. We must recognize the space in which we are. Dallas Willard says this of this story. He says, Peter was overwhelmed by the otherness of Jesus. Holiness is fundamentally otherness or separateness from the ordinary realm of human existence in which we believe we know what we're doing and what is going on. This something else presented in Jesus and his gospel makes it starkly clear that we are both, uh, that we are something dreadfully less. It is the burning sense of this that both breaks our pride and confidence and makes us long to be a disciple. I mean, sometimes you see someone that you admire so much. Right, a hero in your industry, maybe. Right, someone, uh, an author that you've read, and, and they wrote a book. She wrote a book that rocked you and changed your life. And you see them in a coffee shop, and you're like, I've got to say hello. I like this is insane that this person is here. We've all, at one point or another, I think, been somewhat within the vicinity of the presence of somebody that we just knew was like so much more. There's so much more. And, and we're drawn to them. We are magnetized. You see this on playgrounds in elementary schools and middle schools and high schools all across America all the time. The popular kids with this lie and this facade that they are something else, something better. And all the other kids just mob to them. 
right? This is in our nature, and in Jesus, we have the only one who actually is worth that response. And yet, so often, he is simply another film on our instant cue, flipping by, an option to choose when we feel like a sappy romance or an inspirational film. Peter recognizes, Simon recognizes whose presence he is in. And it rocks him. And so it makes, uh, you know, it surprises no one that his response in verse 11 is to leave everything and follow Jesus. Because he recognizes who Jesus is, right? Because you say so, you're, clearly there's something special about you. And because he recognizes who he is, God, I'm a sinful man. You should not be close to me. And in those two recognitions, Jesus bridges the gap with grace and with hope. And he says, follow me. Don't be afraid. Leave everything. Follow me. We're going to fish for people now, which is crazy. And Simon says, inevitably, right, unsurprisingly, he says, yeah, oh man, I don't deserve it, but you're asking me to follow, so absolutely, because I get who you are, I think, and I know who I am, and I don't deserve this, but if you're asking me to go, yeah, I, I, this is a, an opportunity of a lifetime, so yes, and they leave everything and follow Jesus. And so what does it mean for us today to leave everything and follow Jesus? Because in our day and age, Jesus does not walk around in sandals with a beard, physically asking us to leave our jobs and our homes and go off into the desert with him, right? Doesn't, that hasn't, has that happened to anyone? I don't know, maybe. Maybe some of you are like, yeah, me. Um, but that doesn't happen. So what does it look like for us to follow to leave everything and follow him. Eugene Peterson says it beautifully. He says this, it was not enough that I announced the gospel, explain it, or whip up enthusiasm for it. I wanted it lived. Lived in detail, lived on the streets and on the job, lived in the bedrooms and kitchens, lived through cancer and divorce, lived with children and in marriage. Along the way, I found that this also meant living it myself, which turned out to be a far more formidable task for you and I to leave everything and follow Jesus, it means that we take the world in which we live, the spheres in which we exist, our homes, our friendships, our jobs, our school, our passions, our hobbies, all of it, and we flip it inside out and we let Jesus become the center of all of it in our homes and workplaces, like Peterson says, through cancer and divorce, with children and marriage, in singleness and in college and in our jobs and in our dorms and with our families and friends and strangers and people we meet at the grocery store and at the gas station, that in all of it, we allow Jesus to be the center. That's how we leave everything. When we remove ourselves 
ourselves from the center of our life and we replace that center with Jesus himself, that is the way in which you and I, we leave everything and follow Jesus. That the way you interact with the world, the way in which you love and give hope and encouragement and truth with your words and your deeds, in all of it, that Jesus becomes the center. That's how we leave everything and follow Jesus. Because the following of Jesus happens one of two ways. You can be a tourist or a traveler. You can be a tourist or a traveler. Let me explain it this way. My wife uh, and I had this like, really great opportunity to visit some friends in New York uh, last weekend. So I wasn't here with you all. I was in New York eating donuts and gaining weight. But it was amazing. And um, <clears throat> my wife went to school out on the East Coast. And so she loves New York and she loves that whole, you know, just the East Coast. She loves it. And... Um, She's real, my wife is like real adamant about being a traveler and not a tourist. That's like very important to her. So she's very much like, okay, do not take your phone out and take pictures of all the food we're eating. Just eat it, right? And uh, when we were at SFO about to fly out, she says to me, uh, okay, in New York, and it's so funny because we've been to New York together many times. She's like, in New York, whether the light is green or red, don't run. You own the streets. <laughs> My wife says that to me. I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, and so we get to New York, and we're staying in this like cool little apartment in Brooklyn, and around the corner was uh, this really cool cafe called Bedford Hill Cafe. And so uh, Jenny's cousin, who lives in New Jersey, had come into town to visit us. She was staying overnight. So it was myself, Jenny's cousin, and Jenny. And the three of us, one morning, walked out of the apartment we were staying, and we walked to this cafe, and it was full of beards and scarves and people reading like obscure European authors I'd never heard of. It was like the hippest thing. I, like I felt so out of place, right? But I'm just, I'm just a tourist. So I order my coffee and I sit down and the three of us are sitting at this table and I put my coffee down and instantly what happens? I pull out my iPhone, right? Instantly. I'm like, oh, I'm so cool. Instagram, right? Like, I'm just like such a dork, right? I'm just like snapping all these pictures and all the locals are insanely annoyed at me. They're like, oh my God, get this guy back to China or whatever, right? And I'm just like taking pictures, like, yeah, going crazy. And uh, at a certain point, I look up from my insane photo-taking venture. I look up and I realize my wife is gone. She's like not at the table. And here's my wife's cousin just sipping her coffee, reading the newspaper. And I'm with my phone like, where's Jenny? And this is what I see. I turn to my left and this is what I see. My wife, is si she has left our table <laughs> and she is sitting alone. She's sitting alone at the bar with her coffee. And then so she's like four feet from me and she's just sitting there staring at the whatever, the menu. And so I reach over and I'm like, hey, what are you doing? <laughs> and she like will not look at me. She like won't turn. She's just like, <laughs> and she's just hanging out at the bar. She just sat there for a while. And then after a little while we left and she told me, she's like, yeah, 
Like, I couldn't enjoy the coffee shop with you just snapping picture after picture, freaking out. Like, I really just wanted to enjoy that cafe. And my wife took no picture. She has no, like, but she cannot prove to you she was there. Because I took this picture, she can prove to you. So I could prove to you a hundred times over that I was at Bedford Hill Cafe in Brooklyn. But my wife experienced Bedford Hill Cafe. She experienced it. She felt it. She smelled the smells and she saw the colors and she, she felt it. She felt the people and she had conversations with the baristas. She asked about their coffee and she, uh, you know, I don't even know what else. I was too busy taking pictures. You can be a tourist or a traveler with Jesus. And here's the difference. Tourists just want to see as much as possible as quickly as possible. And what matters is how much they see. So you could show up here when the right person is speaking because you don't want to miss that, right? Like, oh, so-and-so is talking. I got, I got to be there. I got to see that. When the right band is playing, I got, oh, I got to be there. When we're throwing that really cool event, it's like, oh, I can't miss that event. It's the best. You can see all that you need to see. But if you want to travel with Jesus, travelers want to experience as much as possible, as fully as possible. What matters most is how deeply they experience. My wife and I spent like five days in New York, and we did New York things. But you know what the best part of our trip was? Uh, We spent our entire Saturday in New Jersey. You ever been to New Jersey? It sucks. (laughs) right if you're from New Jersey please don't be offended it's just the truth it sucks there (laughs) but it was was the best day of our trip because um, my wife has one of her best friends named Linda and her husband Ed they live out there and they just had their first child a year ago and we met him and so all of Saturday we were in Jersey uh, and we didn't even go out. We just stayed in their apartment. And they cooked, and we talked about life, and we got we caught up, and we uh, drank and ate and laughed and looked at old pictures. And I heard stories about Jenny from her high school years that I had never heard before. And we played with this one-year-old baby who is beautiful and amazing. And we laughed some more, and he crapped his pants like 20 times. And <laughs> It was amazing and, and fun and meaningful and rich. And we didn't go anywhere. Like it wasn't a museum and it wasn't a concert and it wasn't a foodie heaven restaurant, right? It wasn't. And I didn't take Instagram pictures on purpose. I didn't, I didn't want to snap photos. I wanted to be present. My hope for us as a community is that we would grow up a little bit. I'm talking to myself as much as anyone else, that we would grow up a little bit and just be done with Christian moments and highlights. Because who cares that you went to that one thing one time? Those, those moments are only significant if they launch us into a life 
that is new and transformed. Jesus doesn't want you to be a tourist who comes and goes to see him every once in a while when he's got something new to say. He wants you and me to travel with him, to experience life with him richly and deeply, to remain in him, not just to visit. Elizabeth Elliot said this, it is God to whom and with whom we travel. And while he is the end of our journey, he is also at every stopping place. Let me pray for you. God, we, um, we admit to you that we are... Uh, addicted to choices and options. And I admit to you that you have quickly become one of them in my life, a choice and an option. And I choose you sometimes when it suits my need or fits my schedule. So God, I repent of that reality and I ask that you would take me over, take over my life, my priorities, my focus, be my center, and be not just my center, but the center of every place I go and everything I do and every thought that I think. Be the center of every conversation. God, I want to be a man who is undone and reconstructed in the image of you, someone who is focused and centered not just on visiting you or checking you out here and there, but remaining in you, journeying with you for the long haul. Help me to embrace a long obedience in the same direction, God. Help all of us to do the same. Break us and remake us and bind our hearts and minds to you loosen our addictions to everything else and fill us with an addiction for you and your kingdom, your love and your hope and may nothing else ever satisfy. In Jesus' name, amen.